Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. They don't even realise is not nourishing their soul, it's destroying their soul. And how many of us, at the very least, cry out in prayer for them? I've, I note this, that every move of God was preceded with his church praying for their city. What do you think are marks of maturity? Those who are mature are authentic, responsible and teachable. When we watch children mature, we watch them move from being dependent to being responsible for themselves and then caring and being responsible for others. Are we mature? Are we caring for others in our community? Tonight, Dr. Corbett is in Lamentations. Hearts poured out like water. Having just talked a lot this morning about heart, I pray that you might help me to convey your heart today and that Father as I do that you would work in our hearts that Lord our hearts would just come a little bit closer to the heart of Christ as a result of being here this morning may your word speak and may I hide behind your word and may people say as a result of this what a wonderful saviour we have in Jesus name amen if you have your bible you can Turn, please, to Lamentations. Follows just after Jeremiah. And it follows just after Jeremiah because it's written by Jeremiah. It's one of Jeremiah's books. Not only is it one of Jeremiah's books, it's one of several that Jeremiah wrote. For those who have ever read First and Second Kings and then read First and Second Chronicles and thought, why are, we, why are we going through this again? Why? I just read First and Second Kings. Now it's First and Second Chronicles. It's just the same story, isn't it? Well, actually, no, it's not quite. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, for example, are the same events seen from four different camera angles, if you will. First and Second Kings were largely written by Jeremiah, largely written by him, which means... He would have taken the records of the kings and put them together. So first and second kings tracks the kings of the south. So you had King David, then you had King Solomon. After King Solomon came, uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam was a dope. And so the ten northern tribes said, decrease the taxation. And Rehoboam said, no. And so they said, OK, well, we don't want anything to do with you guys down south. So south became known as Judah and the north became known as Israel. So these guys became Judah. That's why when they went to Babylon, they, be, they got the nickname Jews. And these guys up here were Israelites. And when 100 years early before Babylon took the Jews away, uh, the Assyrians took these guys away and they basically dispersed. So they're called the lost tribes of Israel the ten lost tribes of Israel. Jeremiah tells the, the, the story. So he'll talk about the king, this king, and as we go along the timeline, he'll talk about this king, this king, this king, this king, this king. First and second Chronicles doesn't even worry about the north. It just tells the story of the southern kings, and it's written by Ezra. And Ezra, he leaves out the bad bits. Well, Ezra must have been quite a, an amazing guy because we, we know that he was the founder of the Pharisees, and you think, oh, doom and gloom and legalism and hypocrites and all the rest of it. But he must have been a really encouraging guy because when he tells the history of the southern tribes, Judah, which was Judah and Benjamin, they just became known as Judah, he leaves out Bathsheba, the sin of David. He leaves out all these other 
gross sins. The, the grossest sin was the sin by Manasseh, who publicly burned his children to false gods. And then later, Ezra tells us in, in Second Chronicles that he repented. Well, Jeremiah doesn't tell us that. Just that's you know. So Ezra was a really positive guy. So he leaves out the bad bits. Why is he doing that? See, the retelling of history can shape your future. And by retelling the history in a positive way, it's just a perspective. It's not that he didn't it's it's just that he didn't go into those details. He only wanted them to focus on the positive. And you think about about Judah coming back from Babylon into their they are devastated. Their city's been destroyed, they've got no money, they've got no resources. And Ezra tells their story. He tells the story, God has got his hand on us. Yes, we've gone away, but now we're back and our future's looking good. Pretty amazing. That's First, first and Second Chronicles. And he starts off, and if you've read the first five chapters of First Chronicles, it's pretty hard going. And it's hard going because we don't get it. And we don't get it because it goes through name after name after name after name. And it's like, pff, big deal. But to the Jews, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. So you've just got to hang in there and then you start to get these little bits of gems in 1 Chronicles 5 where it says, Jabez was born with the name, you are miserable. Imagine that. That was what his mother named him, you are miserable. And so it says that Jabez cried out to the Lord to deliver him from his name. Expand my territory. And it says this, just one verse, it says, and God answered his prayer. And then it goes on, name, 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 name. You think, oh, I'd really like to know a little bit more about this guy, Jabez. Well, someone wrote a whole book about it called The Prayer of Jabez. So, you know, it's just by the way. So we come to Lamentations. And here's Jeremiah. And I, I want us to appreciate that Jeremiah, the prophet to the nations, the weeping prophet, is known as the weeping prophet because over the course of what God did in him and through him, his heart changed and I remember coming into my now 22nd year of pastoring this church that as a as a young man and there's a there's a point to this so if it sounds like I'm putting myself down I, I am I'm looking back and going gee dope you know but as a young man you're not as sensitive to others as you should be and I'm going to make this point in a moment and so what what we're now seeing is Jeremiah who's now 70 something and he's, he's a different guy. He talks about, even in Lamentations, he talks about how his heart just feels like it's, it's water. And at, the, and at the moment he sees anything sad, it, it all just comes out. And, and he says it either comes out here or it comes out here. He, he, he just, he's, that's why he's known as the weeping prophet. But it also, for me, in looking at Lamentations, it says... The Jeremiah that we meet in the early chapters of Jeremiah and the Jeremiah we read about in Lamentations has really grown up. And it tells me something. It tells me that life is a journey. It's not, it's not a journey where we necessarily get somewhere. It's a journey where we become someone. And I look at so many of you and think about so many of you and think you are not now who you were, who you were. <laughs> And isn't that good? And I am not, and someone said it to me last week, and I really appreciated them saying it, you are not who you were. And, and I take that as a compliment. Because if you're walking with Christ, you expect that those rough edges in your life get, get sandpapered off and, they, and, you, and you change. And so I expect that 
that as you hang out here in community with, with us, that you'll grow and you'll change. And I hope that people will come on the journey and that they'll find that this is a safe place, that when someone puts their hand maybe literally on their shoulder and looks them in the eye and says, hey, you shouldn't have said that. It's not because we want to hurt you, it's because we want to help you. You know, someone said there'll, there'll be people that, that will come in with a concept of God, that God is mad at them. And after a while, I hope they come in and they get involved in the community here and they discover it's not that God's mad at them, it's that God's mad about them. Just to get the love of God, just to get it. I, I'm, I'm just giving you some technical detail about Lamentations. We're, hearts poured out like water. Now, where do I get that from? Well, have a look now, please. Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 19. This is what it says. And this is Jeremiah writing about the destruction of his city. The destruction by the Babylonians, the destruction that he foretold from the age of 13, where for decade after decade after decade he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was persecuted, he was described as a false prophet, described as someone who was a hindrance to Israel, and he endured the hostility of his own people for his whole life, written off by his family, told by God he was not to marry, not to take a wife. He's, he's endured a lot. And then he has seen everything he foretold come to pass. And now he's looking at his city. He's gone off to a cave just a, a, a mile or so out of the city. And legend says that he was there crying for his city, remembering the sights that he'd seen of the destruction of his city, and he wrote Lamentations. And here, verse 19, he says this, Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. That's prayer. And I hope you can see it's not just, uh, dear Father, thank you for this food, amen. It's not that kind of prayer. It's real prayer. It's passionate prayer. It's heart-rending prayer. And this is the kind of thing that he's talking about. Notice when he says it's to be done, not at a convenient time. The, the people who guarded the city, the soldiers who guarded the city, had to keep watch throughout the night. Watch, a watch was four hours, and it started, I think it started at 9 p.m., and it went from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., something like that, and then it started, um, I think it was 9 or 10, so it started relatively late. That was the first watch. But if you're announcing this at the first watch, it means it's, there's no time to waste. This is, so, and it's night, and everyone else has gone to bed, and so now you're up, and there's a price to pay, and he wants, he's, calling, he's calling for someone to pray, to pray for the city, to pray for the children. So apparently there were some survivors left. And he's praying that these children, perhaps taken off to Babylon, perhaps wherever they are, pray for these people, and pray particularly for the children who are left in the streets. No parents now, no providers. These children are left without protection, without provision. Pray for them. And you, can, you get the impression that Jeremiah is, is almost overwhelmed with this you know and as I as I look at this I think you know uh, how many of us and I think God had to wait for Jeremiah to come to this point in his life too so that he came to a point in his life when all those 
immature things about being a young person, which most young people don't realise that they have these immature traits. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that journey in a moment. But, but God had to wait for Jeremiah to get to this point of maturity. Because when, you, when, when you're mature, you, you have a heart for others. that not, It's not that it causes you to diminish your own needs and responsibilities. It's in addition to. And, and this is, I want to give you a very simple word that defines the word mature. It's a very simple word. It's the word and, and. You see, when you're immature, it's this and nothing else. It's whatever you're doing, nothing else. But as you take on responsibility, you realise it's not just that I've got to look after my family, I've got staff, I've got people I I relate to in different organisations. So it's and, and, and. And mature people get that. And, and. And Jeremiah is looking at different people and different people and different people and he's bearing some responsibility for it. That's a sign of maturity. I'm going to use another acronym in a moment. It's the art of maturity. You'll see this in a moment. All right. So Jeremiah's reached this point of maturity, which is care for others. I'll just tell you again, I'm, I'm trying to not necessarily intentionally overdoing it, but I, I do want you to hear my heart here. When, whenever I hear people who get a bit uppity about uh, any past or any church that says, you know, we've got to reach the lost. And, and they come and say, but what about the found? What about those of us? It's like, you don't even care about us. And I just think that is a really, really immature way at looking at the Great Commission. Really immature. I don't say that, but I, I, think, I, I think there's something you don't quite get yet. So as a, as a parent, um, and Kim alluded to a situation where, you know, um, one of our neighbours had a family breakdown and, and the children were coming over a lot, sleeping over, having meals with us. And, and I guess we're at a stage of life too where, where, where your heart enlarges. It's not that you just, I just want to care for my four and no more. It's that you care for your own and. Can you hear what I'm saying here? And. So what, what is it that distinguishes the mature from the immature? What, what is it? Uh, because I'm not as mature as I need to be, but I want to be. And as we think about this, and I look at someone like Jeremiah, we can see that maturity is, is evidenced in people, um, couples, families, and even churches. You can have churches that are immature. And I'll, 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 look, you can quote me if you want. I'll sign it even. Church splits happen in immature churches. They cannot happen immature churches. If you've ever gone through a church split, I've never really gone through a church split, but if you've ever gone through a church split, they can only happen where there is immaturity. I'm going to take that a step further. No, I better not because I don't know that it would be well received. So let's see if we can, we can, we can unpack this. Individuals, couples and families can either be mature or immature. All right. Maturity. Here's my acronym, ART. Being mature involves firstly being authentic. I'm not trying to be anyone. I'm not. One of the problems with being a pastor for 22 years in a relatively small town where going to the shopping centre has more to do with how many people you know you're going to see there than if you'll see someone there you know, is that you live in a fishbowl. I really appreciated that video, Stephen. That was brilliant. And... Living in a fishbowl, 
you know, that fish, everyone gets to see the fish. There is nowhere for that fish to hide. When, when you live in a relatively small town, in a, a church where I'm relatively completely accessible, even as much as I try and hide in there, people still find me through the week and all the rest of it, is that you can't, and I think particularly with, with Aussies, you, you can't fake authenticity. You can't fake it. So people get to see me in a radius of, what is it, five square kilometres for 80% of my week, and they'll see me on the tennis court. And so you live, you live in this community where if, if you're not fair income, you'll very soon get flushed out. Now, please, I'm not trying to make that sound like, so aren't I good? That's, that's not my motive. My motive here is in just to tell you that there is an authenticity that comes from living in community. All right, here's, here's the next one, responsible. You, the, the mature person takes on responsibility. This is this word, and. You take on responsibility for marriages in the church. You take on, as a pastor, you take on responsibility for young people who are struggling. I pray a lot for the teens of this church. And you feel it. You take on that responsibility. You take on responsibility for your neighbours. You begin to pray for your neighbours. You, you, know, you just take on responsibilities. I was away on Friday at a national leadership team meeting um, because I'm, I'm a part of a, the oversight of a network of about 40 churches. So we're, we're trying to show care to the pastors of these churches. It's just being responsible. It's an and thing. And the mature person is teachable. So maturity is when, in this instance, is when someone comes up and says, you, you didn't do that very well. Would you like to know a better way to do it? No, get lost. That's not a mature response. A mature response is, sure, I'm, I'm always open to learn. How, how do you think I could improve this? And even though those words are hard to swallow at the time because pride has a funny taste to it, the, the mature person is teachable. Sure, I, I'm open to learn. So authentic, responsible, teachable. These are the things. I want to give a maturity index. Maturity index. So up one end we've got immature, up the other end we've got mature. What does it look like? Well... It looks like this. The immature person starts off life. You might not be able to see this, but there's the word dependent there. In fact, you almost certainly can't see it. Dependent. They're dependent on others. So a newborn, a newborn infant comes into the world. They're dependent for, for their food. They're dependent for clothes. They're dependent for everything. Dependent. The, the next phase is independent. Uh, independent. No, I can do it myself. <laughs> Okay, um, so and they and they begin to take on independence, and that's a, that's kind of a good thing. But as you move toward maturity, you begin to take on this other thing called interdependent. It's where you learn to work with others. It's where you learn to be in community. It's where you learn that you're better off doing life holding the hand of someone else. You're better off you're better off working in teams than trying to be the maverick. So these are the the. the this, this is the sort of the index of maturity. What, how does this translate? What does it look like? The hallmarks of maturity. You, you bear responsibility for yourself. Responsibility for yourself. You show, as you become mature, you, you show care and responsibility for others. So when Kate Smith does a compassion presentation, and, and I, I, I'll just tell you this, that when, when Kate came, I was aware that there was a, I think it was a Ugandan boy, I think, who had been waiting years to be sponsored and no one wanted to sponsor him. And, he, and Kate brought him, among others, to this church and that morning someone sponsored that child. Thank you to whoever did that. I don't know who did that. 
Thank you to whoever did that. But I can tell that whoever did that has a degree of maturity about them because this is an and, and it's care, and it's responsibility for others. Hebrews 5.12 gives the expectation that we in our spiritual walk as Christians will become mature. It puts it this way. For though by this time, so the Christian is expected to go from that end of the scale and move toward that end of the scale. And you hear the apostle who was writing this in, in Hebrews chapter 5 say, Look, by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And that's not a compliment. You can hear it's, it's kind of a rebuke, which ironically, the mature are going to hear and go, you're right, I, I need to continue to grow. So this is what the, the New Testament expects. And we could see that the New Testament puts an expectation that children will grow up. And it's the same thing spiritually. The same thing spiritually. We need to grow up spiritually. And the really good news about this is that Jesus says, let me help you. I'll send the Holy Spirit. He will help you. So it is expected that children will mature. Ephesians 4.14 says this. And again, it's this whole assumption that, that, that will grow up. So that we may no longer be children. So we can be childlike, but not children. You see the difference? Childlike trust, but not children. Tossed to and fro, so that we'll no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So children, in order to mature, need to do something initially, and that is care. That's why having a pet is a really clever parenting technique, because it teaches care for someone else or something else. So children begin to mature when they begin to care. All right. Now, the, the most mature people in the Bible generally were known as elders. They were known as elders. What did these elders do? And, and as it turns out, generally, these elders were older. So there's no record of a 13-year-old anywhere in the Bible being called an elder. Mostly, these were people who'd done a bit of life. They'd learned to care, and they'd learn to care for others beyond their own immediate responsibility. So, all teenagers, please, aspire to be an elder. Mature. Aspire to be someone who's known as a caring person. What did these elders do? They guarded the welfare of their towns. How, not, not like in a military sense, but they... You know where they did the guarding? Where did they guard from? The gates. That's right, the gates. They would sit in the gates. So while soldiers would be up in the watchtowers, the elders are there just hanging out in the gates. Everyone's coming through. They're just checking them out. They're just, you know, like, just are these people dangerous? Are these people, are these people bringing trouble? And the elders would guard at the gates. And so after a while, what happened is people would come to the gates to have their disputes settled. So to be in the gate was to be in a position of influence because the gatekeepers were the ones who said you can come in or you can't come in. So elders soon became known as people who cared for their town. They cared. And you think about it, and I read, I read this in, in Ruth, where when Boaz wants to marry Ruth, he goes to the gate to talk with the near kinsman of Ruth because he knows that's where this guy will be. So 
To be in the gate is to be in a position of influence, to be in a position of power. It's to be in a position where you are guarding and protecting the city, not militarily, but from its very heart and soul. And one of the things that Jeremiah has said about Jerusalem was there was no one in the gates. No one cared enough to sit in the gates. You can see why. It actually costs. And in the story of Ruth, I read this and I think, wow, these guys are farmers. It's not like you know they've got all this time on their hands. These are busy people. They've got to feed their own families. They've got crop failures to deal with. They've somehow got to get water to their animals. These people have already got loads of responsibility. Very little time, and yet they'll sit in the gate because they care for the whole town. I think God has called the church to be near the gate of our city. And here's, here's what's going on. And I want you to see this. I'll bring this to a close. And I'm, going to come back. Oh, I'm only taking this one verse. Pour out your heart like water for the children of your city. You don't have to be old to be an elder. You don't have to be. And you don't have to be a parent to care for children. You don't have to be a parent to have a heart that is poured out for the children and young people of our city. You don't have to be. If we had the time, I would probably bring someone from child services in and say, tell us, just give us a snapshot of some of the things that are happening within 10 kilometres radius of this church now to children. And it would curl your hair. In our town, it's happening. In our city, it's definitely happening. You hear about it. In fact, just watch the TV news this week to see how much flack the Minister for Community Services, which includes um, looking after children, how much flack they get because of the state of what's happening to children in our state. It is horrible. I said you don't have to be old to be an elder. You don't have to be a parent to care for children. The greatest example of this is Jesus. When just before he was crucified, which is surely the greatest act of responsibility the universe has ever hosted, he goes out of the city, he, he's on the Mount of Olives, he looks over Jerusalem. Mount of Olives was a mountain, over, just, there was Mount Zion, which is where Jerusalem was, Mount of Olives, and Jesus looks over the city, and I'll be blown, doesn't this sound like a parent? This is what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are present, uh, who are sent to you, sorry. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? It sounds like the cry of a parent in pain for their children. So here's the question Is it possible to follow Jesus? Is it possible to walk with Jesus? Is it possible to take his right hand, walk with him, and not have his heart morph into our heart. Is it possible? Is it po- can you do that? Can you, can you be indifferent to what he feels? Can you be indifferent to how he sees? Can you? I don't know that it's possible, is it? I just don't know. So the next time you see, oh, a snotty-nosed kid, oh, what a brat. Can, we, can, I t- can I just rebuke you for that, please? And tell you, that's really immature. Behind that snotty-nosed brat of a kid, as you might think of them, is a story and a life that needs more than a scowl. And here's the, here's the question. How many of us pour out our hearts like water for the young 
of our city. I was so impressed, Reese, the other Sunday night when you shared that you go down to Royal Park and there's all these young guys there. You, you, you're just there. You're just there. I think it's awesome. It's brilliant. How many of us see young people in our city and see them as Jesus sees them? As a mother hen who has chicks that are wandering about, about to go into a fire. And that's the picture of a mother hen gathering her chicks. Jesus is the greatest example of this. Not the only one, of course, because we're looking at the life of Jeremiah. He was the same. That's why, in a, hopefully, as we get toward the end, this is part 173 or so of the Jeremiah series. But when we get to the end, you'll, I hope many of you have ah moments when you realise the parallels between Jeremiah and Jesus are uncanny. So here's Jesus looking over Jerusalem going, how often my heart has been poured out for you and I've wanted to gather you as a mother hen. Here's Jeremiah saying, I arose in the night. I poured out my heart for this city. Jeremiah was more of a parent, although he never had a child, than any of the parents who lived in that city. I remind you of the text again. This is Jeremiah's cry. And you can feel it. He said, it, it feels like I'm the only one who did this. Why didn't anyone else join me? Arise. Cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And we can put this down to spiritual hunger. I've, I note this, that every move of God was preceded with his church praying for their city. Hearts poured out like water. With maturity comes a heart for others. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Hearts Poured Out Like Water, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277. For updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.